0: Thank you very much, uh, Jim and uh, Jane. I hope you saw some connections between that reading and the Old Testament reading. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I wonder if that's uh, a thought on your hearts as we come and gather in the name of our Lord Jesus this morning. And then that uh, remarkable, uh, challenging passage that no, no prophecy came simply out of something conjured up out of men's hearts, but men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. We're going to come to that prophecy again of Malachi this morning. Uh, One of those examples of someone who was greatly moved by God, spoke the word of God, and see if we can interpret that to our own day. So let's pray. Now, thank you, gracious God, for your word. Um, We thank you for the reminder that uh, no word is of human origin, but it is of divine origin, and we need to have the willingness, the, the receptiveness in our hearts to hear what you're saying to us from these ancient texts and we do pray that you'll give us uh, open hearts this morning to learn from you and hearts which are changed by the power of your word and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, though, thank you, Jim, for setting us up on the theme. Whether you'll go away with, with any great answers to the subject, what is Christian worship, that, uh, that remains to uh, be seen. But uh, it is a very important subject. And I hope that uh, as we give some attention to it this morning, that you will go away, that there'll be some really positive things that you'll go uh, away to think about. I love that beautiful song we sang at the beginning. I didn't have any input into the singing, but I was so encouraged. Oh God, beyond all praising, we lift our hearts to thee. What a great beginning point. That wonderful uh, song written by Michael Perry from uh, All Souls London. First time I heard that song, I was at Great St. Helens Church, Dick Lucas's famous church in the heart of the business district of London more than 10 years ago, and I was incredibly moved by it, by the words and the music, O oh God, beyond all praising, we lift our hearts to you. I hope we'll be encouraged this morning as we turn to this passage and have a, a more wonderful grasp, a sense of awesome wonder of the God who we worship. Now if you uh, were to ask a stranger why you're going to church this morning I wonder what the stranger would say Now there're a whole range of reasons why Christians followers of Christ meet together uh, but I'm not sure the average person in the street would be quick to grasp the primary reason A lot of people might say well they don't because they're they're following a whole lot of rules and this is a sort of ritual they have to go through I'm not sure that most people have any understanding. Maybe they think of the church as some sort of select club where people do the clubby thing together. But it is an important question. Indeed, uh, we should regularly think about why we gather. We know that Christians meet together on the Lord's Day to remember that he rose from the dead on that day. We meet for teaching. I hope we come with that a teachable heart. We meet for encouragement. We meet for Christian fellowship. We meet sometimes to share the Lord's Supper together, and we, we gather to meet with friends too, like-minded people. We shouldn't minimize that, that's okay, that, that's important too. If you were asked a question a generation ago, why Christians meet together, people would sort, say without fail, well, I gather on Sunday to worship God. It was a pretty simple sort of answer. That was, that was agreed agreed uh, understanding of most people. Now, worship is one of those funny words that have most uh, modern people have a great deal of difficulty understanding. They might occasionally come across the term in a court of law where magistrates are sometimes referred to as your worship, but that is not the most common usage of the term. It is a strange an anachronism in some ways, isn't it, when you think about it. Uh, indeed, uh, in the dictionary, the last reference in the list of the meanings of the word is to take part in a church service. So there's a sense in which our, the previous generation were right about that. This is one of the primary meanings of the word. But do we really know what the word means? In the Bible, the vocabulary associated with worship is extensive, a whole range of uh, meanings all uh, surrounding this core idea. The key idea is that of service. And uh, the uh, the words, in fact, were often used of uh, of a slave and his relationship to his master. Slaves or hired servants had to bring an attitude of genuine service in their work. So the words when used in relation to God are are significant in the sense of an unworthy servant approaching his master. We ought to think about that, an unworthy servant approaching his master. In order to offer this worship to God, his servants would prostrate themselves before him. That was a a sign of inferiority, of humility and so on. Indeed, the most common word in our our Greek New Testament is proskunio, which means to prostrate yourself or fall down on your face. A sign of both the greatness of the one we worship but of your total unworthiness. We don't do that very much today. Falling down, Um, there's a wonderful contemporary song written uh, called fall face down it's a very evocative term isn't it to actually imagine if we were so deeply moved as we gather, deeply aware of the greatness of God that we would actually fall down on our faces but that's the common meaning of the word this posture demonstrated in the worship in the worshiper reverential fear adoring awe and wonder So whatever else we think about worship, those ought to be some of the key ingredients. Let me repeat them. Reverential fear, adoring awe, and wonder. Throughout the Old Testament, the emphasis falls on worship in the congregation, of course, a public gathering, rather than on personal or private worship. Sometimes you'll hear people say today, I go to worship God. They go and do their little thing, don't talk to anyone else, and then go home. Well, the Bible never knew anything of that. It was always collective. It was something you did together. You were aware of uh, how other people were being affected by the wonder of worshipping God. And children would sit in awe and wonder as they saw their their parents deeply affected by gathering in God's name. This is captured, of course, in one of the Psalms in the Old Testament, Psalm 95. Those of you who are familiar with prayer book worship, it was called the Venity because the opening words were... O come, the Vanity, O come, let us sing unto the Lord, let us shout in triumph to the rock of our salvation, let us come before his face with thanksgiving, cry out to him joyfully in Psalms, and then this wonderful line, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And then skipping down to verse 6, so come let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Now, there's a little uh, resume, if you like, about what ancient people, the ancient Jews, understood by godly worship. The Psalms, of course, are full of this spirit of worship. And uh, we know from the Old Testament that in the tabernacle and temple worship, there was an elaborate ritual. In fact, this emphasis on ritual, things like the shedding of blood, especially on, for atonement on the Day of Atonement, presenting of incense and uh, pronouncing God's blessing. They were all part of the, the ritual, if you like, of public worship. But there is a tension between the, the spiritual aspects of worship and the ritual aspects. And we want to think particularly, of course, about the spiritual aspects of worship. You see, the prophets regularly bring a tirade against mere ritualism where there's no heartfelt response. Going through the ritual, going through the motions. And if our, if our church services ever degenerate into simply going through the motions, we are in deep trouble, deep, deep trouble. This came home to us last week in our reading from Malachi 1 and verse 10 where God says, through the prophet to his people, "Oh that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar, for I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will not accept an offering from your hands. You see, just ritual, just going through the motions, if it's not done in the right spirit, and we'll look at that in a minute, is actually an offence to God. It's an affront to him. It's like, I can just do anything I please and then just go through the motions in church and God will be delighted. No way. God is deeply offended by that sort of attitude. You know, there was a lovely hymn written by Brian Uren in 1936 and the opening line of the hymn, I don't know if we've ever sung it, but it goes like this. I come with joy to meet my Lord, forgiven, loved and free, in awe and wonder to recall his life laid down for me. That'd be great words, wouldn't they, to have up on the screen when we gather as God's people, that sort of spirit. That is so different to merely going through motions of ritualism. So, when Christian people gather together, they need to ponder these calls of what it means to engage in wholehearted worship. That's the title I've given to the message this morning, wholehearted worship. Psalm 40 in verse six catches up this cry, sacrifices and offering you did not desire, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. And then the text goes on. I desire to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Now, if you think that's some sort of aberration, that's something that's a minor issue, then we need to hear Psalm 50 in verse 6. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I have no need of a bull from your stalls or goats from your pens, for every animal in the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. If I were hungry, I would tell you, for the world is mine and everything in it. So that's a real tirade against just going through sacrificial ritual and so on. And so we want to make sure we don't err in that direction. We need to come back to what is true spiritual heartfelt worship. Now this provides us with something of a background to our passage from the end of chapter 1 through to chapter 2. Those of you who were with us last week will recall that the prophet really challenges us with three key words. Stop. Do you not know that I truly love you? Look, I see you and your hypocrisy in worship. And then listen, I know you and what is going on in your lives. These are the three great dominating words which come out of this book. And it's the second of these words that God wants us to consider this morning. Look, is it possible that there is hypocrisy and emptiness in our worship it's interesting that uh, chapter 1 verses 11 to 2 and 3 to 2 9 urges us through the prophet to look at our own lives our devotion to Yahweh, Jehovah and whether it is worthy of him so the question we need to ask ourselves is this are we in any way dishonouring God in our worship that's the first thing I want you to think about this morning The danger of dishonoring God, falling into the trap of what was happening around four forty BC among the returning Israelites. When our worship is unworthy of God, is it any wonder that God should say, Oh, that one would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you. Or to update it a little a little better for our own times. Far better that one of you should close the church doors permanently so that you do not deceive yourselves into thinking that God is delighted with your acts of devotion and making a big effort to get to church once on Sunday. Does that sound a little severe, a little harsh? You see, part of the problem for us is that we are so far removed from the understanding of God that was the everyday experience of the ancient Israelites. You see, when God revealed himself to his ancient people, They saw his great power and might, and they fell on their face before him. This was the God who showed his power in the plagues of Egypt, which we've been thinking about in our scripture class. And then, of course, as he overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. True too, of course, in the conquest of Jericho and the other cities in Canaan, and the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, which accompanied them as they went through their journeys in the wilderness. All stories of God's dramatic power in the Old Testament made the nations around God and his people tremble with fear and dread. Not any surprise that therefore the prophets keep recalling people back to that experience where the covenant people were called out to be God's people, rescued, saved from Egypt and now having to enter into a covenant relationship with him. This is captured, of course, in that wonderful verse, verse 11 of chapter 1. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Those words have, of course, been captured. Some of you who are into good church music will remember the presenter of Hereford Cathedral and professor of music, at Oxford University composed a wonderful anthem from the rising of the sun until the going down of the same, my name will be great among the nations. That is God's desire, that among all people they would be aware of his greatness and his wonder, his power and his love. I found myself thinking about this and wondering what are, what are people's attitudes to me as a, as a Christian? Do they stand in awe? Um, If we were to update this passage from verse 11, it would read something like this. I want my name, my reputation, to impact people around me in the community, God says, around me. I want them to show the sort of reverence and love for me, which is appropriate. I wonder if people are challenged by our lives to think about the, the awesome and mighty God one of the things that social commentators observe about modern day Christians is that they are very little different from their secular neighbours in terms of their values and their priorities, the way they order their lives and so on. Very little di- very little different in the way they spend their time, their talents and their treasure. You see, God's people were called to be a peculiar people, not peculiar in peculiar, strange, funny, but Distinctive Strikingly different somehow Not in a holier than thou attitude But somehow distinctively Different in the way they responded To a whole range of circumstances It seems That we have lost that sense of The fear of the Lord As the Old Testament expresses it In our day with the rightful stress on God's Mercy and grace we have I think Inadvertently promoted The idea of cheap grace Do the wrong thing. God will forgive you. He's the God of grace. He won't hold that against you. And it's a great danger that we've moved so far to one extreme that we've lost the sense of reverence and awe. Now, our English word, worship, is actually a combination of two words, the words worth, which we understand, and the word ship. Literally, it means worth-ship, that is giving God his rightful place in our lives, ascribing to God the value, the worth, that he has for us. I wonder if we conduct ourselves as in such a way as the worth we truly place on God. Now, for some of you here this morning, I have no doubt that people around you would draw would, would draw the inevitable conclusion that God is truly great and good. And surely that is the the message we want to, to communicate by our lives and our words. But when I examine my own heart, and remember that God searches the heart, I wonder, in fact, does my practice shape up to what I profess? Is there a coherence between what I do publicly on Sunday and how I live my life day by day? You see, when we act with integrity, when our profession and practice really match up, how thrilling that must be for God. But sadly, when the alternative is true, what must that grieve the heart of God? You see, Paul wrote this when he spoke to the church in Corinth about their public church meetings. This will be a text that some of you are familiar with. He is, of course urging them to get over things like people rushing forward in the in the gathering of the Lord's Supper and forgetting about other people. So he had a great deal today about what our gatherings should be like, our public gatherings. And he says in 1 Corinthians 14, 25, talking about how you are to conduct yourselves, then he says this amazing statement. So he, that is the visitor, when he comes into your gathering will observe all this and he will fall down and worship God saying, Truly, God is among you. Truly, God is in this place, as the old old text used to have it. I wonder if people come into our gatherings and they're overwhelmed with that sort of reaction, that sort of awareness. Truly, God is in this place. You know, one of the best, let me give you an aside for a moment, one of the best passages in the Old Testament which talks about worship is from 2 Samuel 24. Some of you know the story. Daniel, as David has decided to number his mighty men, you know, check on what his forces are like. He numbers all the fighting men, those who can carry a sword and a spear and so on. And Joab, his commander-in-chief, comes back and he says, Master, David, we have 800,000 soldiers ready for battle. But God says, Daniel, what are you doing? David, what are you doing? What are you doing? Are you relying on your forces whereas you should be relying on me? What happened at the conquest when a very small band walked around the city and the walls fell down? What happened under Gideon and the story of the Midianites where God sent most of the people away in a tiny group? Why? Because there can be no boasting in your own strength. And that incredible story of Gideon and the destruction of the Midianites is the most powerful example of how God doesn't work by human might, he works by his own means. So people stand in awe This could not possibly have been from our efforts. So the story from 2 Samuel 24 is an interesting story. David says, there's going to be a judgment, David. This is a serious matter. You think this is just a a minor thing. No, it's a serious. There's going to be three judgments on your nation. You can choose yourself. David, in the end, opts for the plague. And a plague swept through the nation. And David pleads with the Lord that he will stay the plague. And eventually the plague is stayed. And then David wants to offer an offering. This time he's got his heart right. And so he wants to make an offering to God in thanksgiving for what has happened. And I said he approached a man called Aruna, the Jebusite, and he said, I want to make an offering to the Lord. Can I purchase your threshing floor and the other materials? I want to make an offering to the Lord. And uh, being a good, loyal servant, uh, Aruna says, oh, no, 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 my Lord, the king, I'll give them to you. Absolutely, no way. And David says, no. No, for I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. What does that tell you about the nature of true worship? It's costly. And worship that doesn't cost us anything is worth precisely what it costs. Nothing. So we need to understand the great theme through the Bible is genuine worship, genuine Christian worship is costly. And that should impact us in every area of our lives. You know, the Westminster Confession, the great uh, document which undergirds Presbyterianism today, in its shorter catechism, the Westminster Confession says this, the whole purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Bring great glory to God, like verse 11 of chapter 1, and enjoy him forever. The question is, do our lives bring honour and glory to God, or is it possible we are guilty of dishonouring him? The tragic situation we encounter among the people of Malachi's day is that the people, from the priests right down to the common peasants, their attitude betrayed their real state of heart. Verse 13 tells us they sniffed at the sacred altar contemptuously. You get the message, don't you? The priests are irritated and bored by their responsibility to carry out their duties, and the people, not surprisingly, are stingy and deceitful, verse 13. Verse 14 indicates the person who acts like this is under a curse. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, made a previous vow, previous promise, but then sacrificed a blemished animal to the Lord. What does the quality of our worship look like to a holy God? What do our offerings reveal, if we can put it like that? How we use our time, our talents, and our treasure. What does that reveal? You see, this is not a trivial matter. We should search our hearts and ask, what sort of priority does God have in my life? It's a great probing question we should be asking ourselves. What sort of priority does God have in my life? I think of the story of those five devout young missionaries who in the 1950s determined to take the Christian gospel to the Orca Indians, captured in Elizabeth Elliot's remarkable book Through Gates of Splendour. I read it when I was a 17-year-old and it profoundly affected me. She, the young wife of Jim Elliot, the pilot um, who never saw her husband return from that fateful flight, landed on the beach, but they were massacred by the Indians. But think of the priority that God had in the lives of those young men who are prepared to risk all for him. I think of the devotion of William Tyndale, who laboured all his life to bring the Bible to the English-speaking people in their own language. Amazing dedication, terrible opposition to him. He was burnt at the stake in Vilvauda, Belgium, hunted down by Sir Thomas More. who thought it was his divine duty to pursue him and in fact to keep the Bible as a closed book, William Tyndale. Again, I ask the question, does God have that sort of priority in your life and in mine? So what is our God-given responsibility as we come to, more particularly, to chapter 2? Malachi 2 begins with the words, now this is the admonition to you, O priests. A better translation would be, this is the commandment. Which I have for you, priests. And what is the commandment? It is in the subsequent verses from the balance of the the reading, verses 1 to 4, expressed both in negative terms and in positive terms. If you will not listen and if you do not set your heart to honour my name, then such and such will happen. That's the negative side of it. I will curse you and curse your blessings. This probably means either that their priestly benedictions will turn into a curse or that the personal advantages that they enjoyed as priests would be removed for them. A bit hard to say which, but whatever else happens, it's a curse. Indeed, as we uh, move on, verse 3 says, I will rebuke your descendants, meaning that the priests, instead of being held in honour by future generations, would be openly disgraced and thoroughly discredited unless they learn to be worthy representatives of God's covenant. But I said this this, uh, responsibility is expressed both negatively and positively. Indeed, verses 5 to 7, the nature of this priestly service is spelt out. My covenant is to be a covenant of life and peace. Peace here means general prosperity in line with God's gracious promises. In Numbers 25 and verse 12, the Lord had said to Moses, Therefore tell him, that is Levi, the priestly tribe, I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honour of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. So the covenant of life and peace harps back to what we read in in, uh, Numbers 25. 25. How badly things have slipped from those heady days in the wilderness when the covenant was first established. A better translation of verse 5 would be, My covenant was with him life and peace. I gave them to him. Fear, and he feared me and was afraid before my name. In other words, the covenant promises prosperity in return for true reverence and obedience. When David finally came to his senses in 2 Samuel 24, if you read on in that passage, and I urge you to read on, we find he finally decided that uh, the, the, the covenant box, the Ark of the Covenant, was to be left in the house of Obed Edom, the, the, uh, an outsider really to Israel. But God blessed the house, and eventually David comes to his senses and he brings up the Ark to put it in the temple. And it says, as he brought up the temple, now his heart is right with God. And it says, he danced before the Lord with all his might, overwhelmed with joy and wonder at God. As he's doing that, one of the people, who, the oxen, they're carrying the, the covenant box, the Ark of the Covenant. The oxen looked like stumbling and someone rushed forward to hold it. And Azza is struck dead for touching the sacred covenant box. And at that point we think, what is going on? But David gets the message. Eventually, the, 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 uh, the covenant box is brought up to Jerusalem and David dances before the Lord with all his might. Though we read an aside there that his wife, Michael, the daughter of Saul, despised her husband in her heart. This dreadful, extravagant show. Despised David. What does that passage tell us? It tells us two important things about worship. Reverence and rejoicing reverence mustn't touch the covenant box you don't play games with god he is the awesome god reverence and rejoicing isn't that what ought to be characteristic of our own worship genuine deep reverence but also great rejoicing gladness of heart for all the wonderful things that god has done for us in christ Let me draw this to a close. There is so much more that could be said. Let me say a little bit then about the leader's role in all of this. In verse 6, we're reminded of those entrusted with the spiritual oversight of God's people that they must faithfully teach his word. Did you pick up that? Faithfully teach his word. True instruction was in his mouth and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. What a great description that is of genuine ministry. I hope that's our prayer for your new pastor as he comes in the new year, for Graham. That will be characteristic of his life. As I thought about this, I thought about the story of Robert Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish preacher. Some of you know the story. His sermons I read as a young Christian. He preached on the story of Caleb, who we are told followed the Lord fully. The title of the sermon was, What Does It Mean to Follow the Lord Fully. He was called to minister at St Peter's Church, Dundee, in Scotland in 1836 when, he's 20, when he was 23 years of age. By the way, that was actually 300 years exactly after Tyndale was martyred. Isn't that interesting? He preached in that church for a very short time, only six years, before his life came to an end through illness. But it was said of him that he walked with God, he became infected with his master's insatiable hunger for the souls of men, and he wept over Dundee as Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great London preacher, said of him, Read McShay's memoir. Read the whole of it. It is the story of a life of a man who walked with God. Listen again to those words from Malachi and ask yourselves how they impact you. He walked with me in peace peace and righteousness and turned many from sin and then finally this wonderful positive statement in verse 7 for the lips of the priest ought to preserve knowledge and from his mouth men should seek instruction because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty what does Malachi's name mean? my messenger there's that expression again by the way the Lord Almighty which occurs 20 times in this little book Tragically, instead of turning people from sin, the priests in that day were by the word and action turning them into sin. We might think it inconceivable that those who would have stood for righteousness actually practised and promoted sin. How the unbelievable world must be delighted to behold that sort of spectacle. The words of 1 Timothy 3.7 and James 3.1 come to mind when we read, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater severity. Christians today still cringe when they hear stories of evangelists and pastors and priests who succumb to the temptation to fall into sin. When there is moral failure on the part of a pastor, the secular media delights to report such breaking news and those who are eager to discredit the Christian gospel now nod their heads in approval. When religious detractors and skeptics find their preconceptions about hypocrisy confirmed in this way how much the name of Christ is harmed. We need to ask ourselves whether we are quick to join the forces of condemnation or whether we earnestly pray for and do all that we can to protect our pastors from falling. It's been my privilege over the last 20 years to be involved in a number of retreat groups. We launched these groups in 1995 which are about encouraging pastors to receive both support, transformation, experience, personal spiritual formation, and especially to be genuinely authentic with their peers about the struggles which they are experiencing. Indeed, we've seen God bless and safeguard pastors who might have well have been falling out of the ministry, and I hope that you will have a heart to pray for your pastor when he comes. Pray that God would protect him from the attacks of the evil one. For you know what Jesus said, the evil one's strategy is, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's his strategy. So I hope that you will pray for, support, and encourage your new pastor when he comes. How often do we, as Christians, pray that the enemy's influence will be hindered in the lives of prominent, visible believers, for he delights to attack them primary of our state, a deeply Christian man we need to pray for such people what a challenge there is for us in this passage isn't there, do we truly honour God in our lives publicly and privately to pick up those (coughs) words was it uh, (coughs) a couple of weeks ago Zoe picked up for us, do we shine like stars in the universe exhibiting the wonder of God's transforming power in our lives and we close with those words do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of god without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that i may boast on the day of christ that i did not run or labor for nothing let's bow heads in prayer Uh, gracious God, we are humbled by your word. We recognise ourselves so often in the pages of Holy Scripture. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have to say, that's that's just like me. We pray that you would cleanse our hearts, change our wills, make us people who love your name, people who are characterised by reverence and rejoicing, who understand the costliness of true Christian worship and give us grace to put those things into practice in our lives.